0: Right. Uh, my third point was leaders' fear that they'll be uh, exposed as frauds. I think that's probably, everyone probably has that fear, um, or fear of making a mistake. Um, however, we just realized
1: And welcome to the One C A podcast. My name is John McElligh, your host for today's episode. We're joined by special guest, Major Jamie Schwand. He is a Maverick critical thinker, leader, and innovator. He challenges the status quo. He's a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt, Red Team member for the Department of the Army. He's an accomplished writer, publishing in military journals, magazines, and blogs, including the Army Magazine. It's published by AUSA, a partner organization of the Civil Affairs Association. MOA, the Military Officers Association of America in Task and Purpose. He is the recipient of the Douglas MacArthur Military Leadership Writing Award, sponsored by the Douglas MacArthur Foundation in Norfolk, in Norfolk, Virginia, administered by the Center for Army Leadership. Major Schwann is also the recipient of the Command General Staff College CGSC Iron Pen Award. He is an adjunct professor at the Robbins College of Business and Entrepreneurship and the Department of Health and Human Performance at the Fort Hayes State University, where he teaches. He's also the 2016 Young Alumni of the Year Award recipient at Fort Hayes. Major Schwant received his doctorate in education from Kansas State University and his MS and BS from Fort Hayes. He has published several books, including Succeeding as a Foster Child, a workbook, Finding Your Hero, and Succeeding as a Foster Child. Major Jamie Schwant, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Sir, wanted to... Uh, talk with you about the the writing you've done over the last several years, some of the more current stuff, and your background as a logistician for the army, how that may relate to critical thinking uh, applied to the army and applied to civil affairs. So sir, I wanted to start with the question about swarm learning. Some people may not have heard about that term before. You've written a lot about swarm learning and swarm intelligence. And I know that the term relates to large groups of insects. So, what does swarm learning mean? Yeah. So, it, uh, it, it for me on.
0: It's uh, kind of a confusing but very, very cool idea at the same time. Referring to swarm intelligence. Now, swarm learning is kind of something I think. And I could be wrong, but I think I'm the first one to kind of use you know those two words together, um, creating this methodology. Um, but I created this for college courses I teach for Fort A. State University. Um, and it's also going to be coming out um, in March through MOA Magazine. They're publishing a piece on Swarm Learning um, so I'm advocating it to, to be a part of a PME. But essentially, Swarm Learning is getting immediate feedback from students. Like, for example, I, I do these feedback injection maps, what I, what I call them throughout, throughout the year for my students, where they provide me feedback during the class. And it actually changes the class in progress. I don't change the concepts I teach. I just change um, how I teach them because um, I want them to tell me kind of, you know, uh, how they're thinking is, is really what I'm getting. at. I use a systems thinking platform called Plectica where I have them map out their thoughts and map out their learning. So I want to teach them how
1: to think and not what to think, if that makes any sense. Right. And using swarm intelligence,
0: um, if you think of the, the simple rules, for example, an ant colony would use because it's completely autonomous, really. It's it's decentralized. There is no, you know, the, the queen ant doesn't give commands. Um, ants, you know, they'll, they'll go searching for food, for example. They'll shoot pheromones. Uh, another ant will find those pheromones if it's strong enough. And they'll go to a food source, and they'll deplete that food source. Then they'll spread out, the, you know, disperse, and shoot more pheromones, you know, kind of like that. And they use simple rules, because simplicity underlies complexity. Simple rules instead of complete command and control, and I wrote a piece that that was discussing this idea with mission command, where I kind of argued that mission command is essentially swarm intelligence. But uh, without going down a a rabbit hole or in a rant, that's kind of the gist of of
1: swarm learning. Okay. How did you come up with the concept? Why was it in the forefront of your mind and in the connection to the military?
0: As I was, I think it was a couple years ago, I'm a big fan of, of systems thinking and I came across a book um, called Systems Thinking Made Simple by Doctors Derek and Laura Cabrera. They're Cornell professors. Um, they wrote a recent book called Flock, Not Clock. kind of goes into this idea of complex adaptive systems, where I kind of stole the idea and call it complex adaptive syllabus for my class. Um, but I came across their book, and it it was very, very simple, but very complex at the same time. And it's uh, basically they, they discuss systems thinking version 2.0 um, is what Derek calls it. It's, it's using simple rules of DSRP, where everything um, has a distinction. Everything is a system. You know, it ha- Everything is a, uh, has a part and it's a whole of something. Um, everything is, has relationships and different perspectives. Um, they also created the Plexica mapping system that I use and have my students use that I mentioned a while ago. But I came across his book. And he talks about swarm intelligence um, using these simple rules and complexity. And I it, it started getting the, the understanding of the difference between complexity and complicated systems, you know. Then I came across another, another very cool uh, um, individual, Dave Snowden, uh, the, the, the good Snowden here. Um, yeah. I don't know if you ever came across the Kineffen framework where he talks about how there's if you think of there's five domains if you think of a quadrant you have simple complicated complex chaotic and disorder um, he breaks down similar to how Derek does it uh, in, uh, with the SRP but i came across these different ideas and realizing that well students really aren't that different than uh, than it's going to sound crazy but the ants right we don't why do we need a teacher to you know to try to give you know, these pretty powerful presentations, just throw all this information at you. Why don't we actually make you part of the class instead of the leader of the class and make it decentralized and, and see how the students are actually learning? And really, it's instead of having, uh, and Derek talks about this a lot, instead of, uh, I think we get confused and we think uh, information is knowledge, however we have to insert thinking into the equation, where they, Derek talks about information times thinking equals knowledge. And so that's really kind of the gist of me, what I'm trying to get at, is I'm inserting thinking into the classroom, I'm taking away command and control structure in a way, um, and making it truly decentralized and letting the class, kind of the learning
1: emerge from uh, the classroom itself. Okay. So it, it sounds like, the. I mean, some of that is very historical, looking at the Socratic method, where... You may have someone who's an instructor just facilitating thinking and I don't know if Socrates had all the answers, right? But his his approach to his students was to facilitate their discussion and he wasn't always the person, certainly didn't have PowerPoint, but if he did, I don't think he would he would have used it. He would have just yeah, facilitated okay. a discussion in the class.
0: One of the very one of the interesting things I've been doing this swarm light concept in my class for a year now, those feedback maps are in my minor, the most important piece, because I will you know completely change how I'm doing something based on those feedback maps and those the students really do drive the course. That piece there, I think, is missed. I don't know if we ever truly ask in the middle, of, you know during a course, and I do it four times during the course, what students are thinking and you know what they how they're thinking and what changes I can do to actually help you know to improve their their thinking. Yeah. And you know I don't think that is. Done anywhere. um,
1: At least to the extent that that I'm doing it, I could be. You know, I could be wrong. So that's at uh, college, university level. Normally, as a professor, you would have to submit your syllabus, approved by the department, and you know, under the auspices of that college, and therefore the provost is for the university, and you're locked in sort of to that syllabus for the semester or that session. How can you, do you have the latitude within a college or university system to adjust course during that semester? You know, I've never
0: asked for permission. Good. So I'm not going to start if they, you know, so I, they have my syllabus, I send it to them. Uh, but I have, the, the university I work, work for, I went to school there. That's where you mentioned I was a Young Alumni of the Year recipient there. Right. I have a great relationship with them. But they also know that if they told me to do a different way, I would just quit because it's I don't need to do that, right? Okay. Full time job. Yeah. So they never, I've never asked for permission, and I don't plan on starting. And if, if they ever told me to change it, but they do have my syllabus. It does go, you know, it does go up, and it's okay. just like you mentioned.
1: I asked that so question, uh, sir, I, because I guess
0: it might, it could be difficult for someone to to do that if they didn't have the the leeway to um, kind of
1: adapt as as I'm doing. But uh, right. But based on the student feedback maps
0: I get, so they also do the one thing we're missing at university is, and of course evaluations. Um, that's built into the class, and so every every semester I have nearly 100% complete theirs. So it's proof that this works and that students are loving it and are engaged. You know,
1: that's really good to hear. Yeah, I asked that that question to lead into my next one because it seems to me like professional military education (PME) is built on the same model civilian uh for civilian education where professors have to submit their syllabus and for the pme courses that listeners may have gone through or will be going through it's pretty rigid rigid and when you talk about taking command and control out of the classroom or reducing it somehow that is inherent with the military structure so would you propose that pme shift to the model that you're talking about and how would that happen
0: Obviously, obviously, I think they should, right? A little bias here. Yeah. Um, realistically, I, I, don't, I don't know if they will. I don't know if they ever would. Um, however, if they did, they would truly practice what they preach, right? They would get more at mission command, the philosophy of mission command, instead of uh, just complete command and control. So really, I mean, they, they should be doing it based on um, off the principle of mission command. I think it's, it takes courage from the actual professor to do it. I mean... Again, I don't ask for permission. Most people probably don't have that mindset, uh, but that's probably the only way to initiate change is just to do it. I mean, that's a good question, but if we follow principal principle of mission command, I guess that'd be my fallback there that we should be doing it anyways. Right. And just, just another, uh,
1: something I just forgot, so another proof that this kind of works. So I also have my students write essays throughout the year and they build on a, an essay that uses innovative ideas to tie into what they're learning. Okay.
0: And I give them extra credit, if they create a blog. And in my last class I had uh, a few few students submit a blog, you know. Nice. Um, so publishing, you know, while they're learning, I think is very important. And to show the comfort with the ambiguity to be able to do that I think was pretty impressive. So, I mean, it just works. I just, uh, I don't really know how to, you know, get more people to, to jump on board, especially when it's Sometimes it's hard to understand what the you know what the hell I'm talking about, which uh, I'm sure most of your listeners um, are probably getting right now.
1: Yeah, well that's where we're starting here. Uh, I want to encourage people to go to your website to find out more about swarm learning and read what you've already published, sir. So you wrote, quote, swarm learning not only teaches students to be comfortable with ambiguity, it weaponizes it. End quote. Uh, so could you describe that and offer some examples?
0: Yeah, so um, actually working on. About, and you can tell me what you think about this one. Give me some feedback here. Uh call it Jedi logic. Yes. Really what I'm trying to do is, you know, using the, the force as a metaphor there. So if we want to teach our students how to think, um, then we have to change how we're teaching them. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the art of controversy by, uh, it's uh, Schopenhauer's 38 stratagems. No, I'm not. He really talks about, in a way, when I first started reading it, I was thinking about well he's weaponizing logical fallacies here he's really showing you how uh, to win an argument you know it we don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to have the most logical argument to win an argument so he shows you how to find you know how to, how to kind of be prepared for someone that's gonna weaponize logical fallacies and not just really look at you know how to logically beat you um, so using kind of the 38 stratagems, also using I know the guy's kind of controversial but Ben, uh, what's his name Ben Shapiro. The way he goes about arguments and debates. Um, so using, I think he's got these 11 rules. Then also diving into Carl Sagan's um, baloney detector, BS detector. Um, if you're familiar with that, um, looking at heck even geometric proofs um, that use if then uh, logical chains. So basically, I'm talking about all these different ideas and synthesizing them. And that's really what I do for everything into one. Idea where you have this uh, Jedi logic where you use the principle of Occam's razor and you find the the simplest explanation to to win your argument. So basically, you're going to dive into these bag of tricks in a way. I don't know if that's the right word to call it to get at you know how you want to win whatever argument that that you're having or debate that you're having. Just knowing that pure logic isn't going to you know win that debate for you all the time. Um, I think we see that in politics all the time. But uh, so in a way, I'm, I'm wanting my students to think differently about their conversations, their debates, or their arguments that they're having. And I want them to have a bag of tricks that they can dive, you know, put their hands in and uh, use on different uh, different people,
1: understanding the purpose or the intent the person that's coming at you has. You know? right. I don't
0: know if that makes any
1: sense at all. It does, and I think that's the added value of why students are paying to be in person and learn from a, an instructor like yourself, to stretch their mind, to think outside the box, and to hear new ideas. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Jamie Schwann, a U.S. Army major, logistician, and author. We're going to come back and talk to him about how this is connected possibly with Ender's Game, popular book, and to connect the concepts of swarm learning and swarm intelligence with red teams. Do you want to make some money? Do you have an idea about how to better integrate civil affairs? If you do, then check out the Civil Affairs Association call for papers. Civil affairs integration surfaced as the forefront issue for the future development of the regiment at the conclusion of last year's discussion at the Washington DC roundtable. However, in order for civil affairs to become a better joint force for integration across multiple domains in human geography, the regiment must first better integrate itself, then with those it works for, by, with, and through. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to send an originally written issue paper by no later than the close of business Friday 30 August. To better assist authors, you can find recent papers, reports, and articles, as well as an array of cited references and historical documents, in the new online research library under the association website page, Resources. You can also call upon the new Publications Advisory Board for assistance. They'll help you in crafting the argument for your paper. The top five papers will appear in the 2019-20 Civil Affairs issue papers, and authors will present them at the CA Symposium in Tampa, Florida in October. First prize is $1,000, second prize $500, and third prize $250. Good luck to all the authors. Welcome back to our interview with Major Jamie Schwan. Sir, I wanted to uh, talk to you about swarms and preparing students. Those ideas were popular in Orson Scott Card's famous book, Ender's Game, where it had very young students brought together. Uh, They had been pre-selected by society and the military to train them at a higher level. They were fighting against these ant-like formics, and the student leader, Ender Wiggin, was the young warrior who succeeded in ambiguity. Did you get ideas for the swarm learning or swarm intelligence from books like these? Oh, yeah, I'm a
0: huge fan of, of Ender's Game. I wrote about this exact topic when you first reached out to me. I was in the middle of a very long article on it, which I just published on my own uh, on medium.com. But the, the article is called Fingertip Feeling a Synthesis of Ideas from Maneuver Warfare, 4GW, Loop, which I'm a big fan of, and Ender's Game. The way that in the book, that Ender is able to really change the rules, and like the, the giant, for example, and force the giant, you know, to play by his rules. Yeah, that, that that book was definitely 100% an inspiration in my swarm learning, you know, concept.
1: Yeah, I think it still required learning for uh, officers in the Marine Corps. I think when they're junior officers, tactical level, it's a book that the uh, commandant in the Marine Corps encourages Marines to to read. Uh, so. That would make, that would make like the Marines have to. You know, I, I love what they have to read. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there and there are follow-up books to that. They had uh, several books that Orson Scott Card put out after Ender's Game that carries through time and space, and then the popular movie that came out several years ago. Sir, I wanted to ask you if there are any parts of the military already succeeding with the ideas of swarm learning or swarm intelligence, whether it's people or technology. I guess I don't know the answer to that. I'm assuming there, there are. I mean,
0: you look at some of the swarming robotics or some of the AI that's coming out. I know that I just read something on the U.K. the other day about adopting swarming AI and robotics. I know the military, I can't remember what the uh, or the U.S. military has. The, they were looking at a program. I don't know if it's called the Gremlins or something like that. The, uh, I can't remember. Something along the lines of the Gremlins where they were going to drop swarming robots out of a, a plane. I can't remember
1: what, what type of aircraft. So, I'm sure there are. I don't see it. Yeah. But I'm sure there are. So, it's, you know, I have
0: a very small piece that I've seen of the military. So, I'm, I'm hoping there are. Now, right. I know maneuver warfare kind of gets close, right? Guerrilla warfare is similar. But, uh, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping there are.
1: Okay. So, sir, so I want to try to connect these concepts to red teams. Uh, you've gone through the red teaming program at Fort Leavenworth, which is amazing, uh, from everyone who's attended. I've heard it's a really good thing. We've got the Red Team member courses, the Red Team leader course, which is more involved and more lengthy. So if we can try to re- frame Red Teams for the audience right now, uh, who are they? What do Red Teams do? Where do they operate? And why do they exist?
0: So the Red Team, and again, I'm, I, don't, I don't work for the Red Team School or the University of Foreign um, Cultural Studies or Foreign Military and Cultural Studies. Um, so I'm not speaking for them. I'm just a... You know, an officer that went through their school, um, which was probably the most enjoyable school I've ever been through. Uh, The instructor I had, Dr. Rob McClary, he was fantastic, and I actually stole one of their ideas where I don't have tests in my class that I teach, which is kind of crazy. But there wasn't any tests in the the school. You know, it's hard to explain why it was so good, um, but it, it was perfect for someone like me who was very comfortable with ambiguity, someone that thinks differently than most anyways red team school, they have they have certain things that they really want to get at. Um, they have their, what they call, if I remember right, their four pillars, or it was uh, introspection and self-reflection, group think mitigation. They wanted to foster it, uh, fostering cultural empathy and applied critical thinking, when they actually wanted to apply it. But really having a red team, what they wanted to get is, you know, get red team members in the force, and I think it's still a requirement. At some level, I'm not sure if it's, you know, active duty, what level it is, reserve what level it is, probably the general officer level having on the staff. Um, but to prevent, you know, to not prevent, prevent's probably not the right word, but to red team, to, to, to look at alternative uh, ways a course of action could go or, you know, different mindsets uh, to prevent uh, a commander from going down the wrong road or having all these unintended consequences that could come back and fight them. Yeah, so I think that's probably the probably the best way that I can think to explain it. What was the second part of your question there?
1: I wanted to ask you where they operate. They're typically like a staffing element, right, that would support the planning cell?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's how it's supposed to be. Okay. However, I don't know. So I'm, a, I'm an Army Reserve, Active Guard Reserve guy, so one of the full-timers for the Reserve, and I've never seen Red Team really used, which is unfortunate. I don't know if the acting opponent does it better. I'm hoping the Marine Corps does it better. Um, but I think it's supposed to be on general officer staff. Again, you know, I'm not 100% sure. I think you're supposed to have a red team. Um, even in the schoolhouse uh, at CGSC we didn't really use the red team right. I think people get mixed up with the the G2 during, let's say, MDMP, which I'm not a fan of, and red teamer. But uh, however it's supposed to be, I don't think we're using it right.
1: Okay, so that that's connected to an article that you wrote, uh, published in Task and Purpose, titled Five Irrational Reasons Why Military Leaders Hate Red Teaming. What are those five reasons? (laughs) I forgot about that one. Sorry, go ahead. What would you say? Yeah. Sir, can you talk about what those five reasons are? And then the last question we'll get to uh, to close it out is a connection you may see between swarm learning, swarm intelligence, and red teams, possibilities for it. Okay.
0: systems uh, processes I discussed a lot in Red Team training. You know, with fostering cultural empathy, you have to understand the system. Now, swarm intelligence, to me, makes sense with the decentralized uh, mission command, you know, idea we were talking earlier. Outside of that, swarm intelligence wasn't really brought up in the Red Team school, um, and it wasn't even brought up in that context. I think that would be the school that would actually embrace it but i'm not really sure on um the connection there i'm sure there is one but i'm drawing a blank right now okay yeah so the, the five that i hit on and uh i was going back and forth with uh, tom ricks when i wrote this one i think the number one uh that i wrote about there was the leaders confused what red team actually is i think i mean just the fact that we don't use them right well i'm assuming we don't um uh, at least what i've seen that shows right there that we don't understand what it is. They probably think it's someone who's, what, a black hat hacker or whatever they're called, you know? Right. Uh, or what do they call black and white hats? I'm not an uh, expert on hacking. The second point there where I think that's where most people don't like it, it is where leaders are like many people. They simply do not like to be questioned or challenged. As soon as you question someone or challenge them, especially the senior rank, um, usually they squash you. Um, and you don't question them again. Um, that's where I get into trouble where I will still question them afraid. Uh, My third point was leaders' fear that they'll be uh, exposed as frauds. I think that's probably, everyone probably has that fear Um, or fear of making a mistake. However, we just realize that's how we learn. Um, But I guess you see a lot of people, you know, get fired, I guess, if if they make mistakes. And so I guess that would cause someone to to fear um, looking stupid. The uh, funneling of information. So like number four was by the time a Problem reaches the leader. Majority of the relevant information and facts have been filtered out. I think we see that a lot, where every layer we go through, information gets stripped and reality gets stripped away. You know, oftentimes, you'll hear people complain about uh, those at the top lose, lose a sense of reality, and I think that's that's the reason um, subordinates gets to the, the point where they they think they just got to feed the boss what he, uh, you know, what, what, he uh, what he wants to hear, what will keep him happy or him or her happy. Right. Uh, any sense and then number five with leaders like predictable and linear solutions that are not comfortable comfortable to ambiguity that just goes to the military culture i think the linear um think of mdmp for example you get to go you go down the rabbit hole of, of mdmp and it's so hard to change change a plan even though if you know you're going to fail um you've got so much invested into it it's it's so hard to adapt to the situation at hand it's like telling someone to Take the hill. What's the purpose of taking the hill? Is there an enemy on the hill? Are they still going to be there when we take it? You know, it doesn't matter because we already started down this path. We're taking that damn hill. You know, right. Um, So you have to have that red teamer there, that that someone there that can stop the madness and get people to to redirect and adapt to what's actually happening. You know,
1: right. And you're saying that the swarm learning, the swarm thinking. Could be really tied well with red teaming. You just don't know if, if it is formally right now. I, I don't think it
0: is, but I think we just kind of came across, and I, one of the reasons why it should be right there, right? So, swarm intelligence is, is more about adapting, especially if you think of, of ants, right? Like leaving their pheromones, like we mentioned earlier. Um, the strength of the pheromone, you know, they'll go to that that location. So, if we make change, like a strong pheromone in a way, where we will, you know, we're more likely to adapt than not. You would need someone like a red teamer that is comfortable with ambiguity um, that could force that change on your team, you know. So I, I think that's where the connection would be. I just don't think there is yet. So
1: yeah, makes sense. Well, sir, I think we could uh, leave it there. Um, this has been a an eye opening discussion for me to learn more about swarm learning and swarm intelligence. Hope the listeners can go to your website, which is. JamieSchwant.com, and that is spelled J-A-M-I-E-S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T.com. Uh, your blog is named The Honey Badger, which I think is amazing. And uh, the books you've been putting out are great. Um, I really appreciate the articles. I don't know where you find the time with your family and, and the work that you're doing to put out all those articles, but uh, this is the type of critical thinking the Army needs and that the uh, the Army and the Marine Corps and everyone else in civil affairs can learn a lot from your, your thoughts. So I would encourage everyone to go to your website, um, look at the publications that you put on there and linked. And um, is there anything you have for uh, any final tips for the listening audience to civil affairs and some of the things you have, may have coming up in a few months? I guess uh,
0: you mentioned uh, finding the time. So if you get if bored, go to my website. If you can find it, my website's kind of confusing. Um, so I treat it like a, a living experience or a living experiment. I, I'm always in beta mode. But there's a, an article I wrote for Lifehack.org called "The 24-Hour Workout," so I, um, it kind of give you a sense of where I find the time. Qu- real quickly, I wanted to—I was looking through the fingertip feeling article I mentioned before, um, and I used an idea from again another crazy idea. I'm not even trying to pronounce the correct name, but it's it's the miniature robber fly um, on how it reacts to um, to catch prey, basically. But I created a model. Using that as inspiration and using Ender's game as an inspiration, all those other ideas that I call the SEE model, the C model, or you sense, estimate, and establish. Kind of like the Uddaloop in a way, I was just trying to condense it. But it, it, it really its you think of like Ender changing the rules. Um, he had to first learn the rules, so he had to sense those rules. Surrounded by enemies, forced him to estimate, find those surfacing gaps. Uh, if you think of maneuver warfare, um, he's able to estimate his enemies' patterns. And then he established uh, his, his own shifting patterns of movement and forces the enemy to kind of play by his rules. I think using models like that, like the SE model, using the OODA loop, which most people either don't understand or they hate John Boyd because he was kind of a dick, which I kind of like. Using models like that, I think, are the way of the, way of the future, kind of the way to help us move away from our linear mindset in the military. I guess that would be my—that'd be my final advice. There, otherwise, I'll
1: just keep, uh, keep going off on rants. Hey Amen. Well, sir, I really appreciate your time. Glad that you came on the One CA podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of One CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.